The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. This morning comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you're using the Black Pew Bible, that's going to be on page 976. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. On this Labor Day weekend, um, hopefully your plans uh, for this weekend, uh, most of us have a, a little extra uh, day, three-day weekend, so I'm just hoping that this will be a good time of rest and relaxation for you. Um, the gospel of Christ very much has implications for recreation, how we just rest and relax from the doing of work, and so my hope is that if you haven't already started um, on yesterday um, or today, but that you would be able to have um, that extra day off tomorrow and be able to just rest and relax. So what we are, I'm going to do this morning, as um, Mallory just read for us, Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to focus in on our last week of our whole gospel sermon series. And so what we're going to do is turn our attention to um, this last study, this last study, this last aspect of the gospel that we've been talking about, um, where we've said over the past couple of weeks, the word gospel is a word we use a lot in the church, but it's a word that may not be well understood. And what we've been saying is this, the word gospel just simply means good news. And over the past couple of weeks, what we've been saying and teaching and looking at from the scriptures is that when the Bible talks about the good news, the gospel of what God has done for us in Christ, that it does so in at least three different ways. It talks about the good news of God's kingdom, it talks about the good news of God's cross, and it talks about the good news of God's grace. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to focus in our attention on that last aspect of the good news of God's grace from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 10. So before we get started, we're going to pray, 
and ask the Holy Spirit to use me in a mighty way so that as we turn our attention to the study of Scripture that we would not only hear with our minds, but actually hear with our hearts, be affected and changed by the preaching of God's Word. So, let's pray. Father, we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to come and do what we are incapable of doing. And so, Father, I just ask that you would be magnified this morning as the Holy Spirit uses me to preach, to proclaim the words of Jesus from Ephesians chapter 2. Holy Spirit, we need you to do great work this morning, to not only help us to understand these things on a mental level, um, just learning true and right and factual things, but that we would actually see this information move beyond our minds into our hearts, changing us, transforming us, making us and molding us more into the image of Christ. Spirit, we need you to do this. We ask you to do this. And we pray all these things in the wonderful and powerful name of Jesus Christ himself. Amen. So here we are in Ephesians chapter 2, and what we find are probably some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. Ten verses, and what I love about these verses here is that they are nine-tenths grace, and then Paul turns into that tenth verse, and he moves towards the application of grace. And so if you're wanting a good picture, a, a portrait, a snapshot of what the gospel of grace is all about one of the best places you could possibly go is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, what we've been doing over the past couple of weeks is giving a definition, a thought to the different ways that we've been thinking about the gospel. So we gave a definition to the good news of God's kingdom. We gave a definition to the good news of God's cross. And this morning, if we want to just try to wrap our minds around this idea of God's grace and what exactly is the good news of God's grace, we would define it like this, okay? God's grace, it is the good news of God's wonderful acceptance of us. It's the good news of God's acceptance of us, of sinners. But it's not because we have earned His grace, and it's not because we deserve His grace. But God's grace is good news because God gives it to us freely at Christ's expense. So the good news of God's grace is His wonderful acceptance of us, of you and me as sinners. And what makes grace good news is that we have done nothing to deserve it. We've done nothing to earn it. We're not owed God's grace. But God's grace comes to us still because He gives it to us freely at the expense of Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross. Now what Paul's going to do is we turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. What he's going to do in this passage in order to magnify the good news of God's grace, is he's going to paint a vivid contrast between what man is by nature and what man can become by God's grace. So in order for you and I to understand just how amazing God's grace really is, we must first be exposed to and awakened to the bad news of our sin 
problem. So if you turn your attention to what Paul begins writing there in verse 1 in your copy of Scripture, so you can pull up that black Bible around you or your phone or your iPad or whatever you may have, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, notice what Paul, Paul writes for us. He says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, who is also the prince of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what Paul first shows us is this. He gives us a snapshot of the depth of humanity's sin. Verses 1 through 3 show us the depth of humanity's sin. So starting off in verse 1, the Apostle Paul turns to the Ephesian Christians, the Christians to whom he is writing this letter, and he reminds them of what they once were when they were outside of Christ, when they were apart from Jesus, when they did not have a saving relationship with him. And as he reminds them of what they once were, Paul paints a detailed portrait of humanity which displays the utter depths of humanity's sin. Now ultimately, these verses are a snapshot of sin which runs deep throughout all humanity. See, Paul is not giving us a look into some particular evil segment of society, Right? What he's not saying is like those people over there, you know, the ones that we would all agree are really doing really bad, heinous, awful, evil, wicked stuff. Verses 1 through 3 just describes them, but it's not really talking about anybody else. That's not what Paul is doing in verses 1 through 3. He is painting a picture, a portrait of sin which runs deep throughout all humanity. The Bible says, Genesis chapter 1, 2 and 3, that ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, all humanity has been infected with the devastating disease of sin. When Paul says, what Paul says in these verses is the biblical diagnosis of fallen man everywhere. And this sin disease not only separates us from one another, but it ultimately separates us from God. This is what we see in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve disobey God. They go against what he says. And then part of the fallout in Genesis chapter 3 is that the relationship between humanity at that time, Adam and Eve, gets severed because of sin. So relationships on the horizontal plane get cracked and separated. Brokenness, destruction conflict comes in on this horizontal plane, but ultimately the bad news of Genesis chapter 3, the bad news of sin that creeps into all of humanity is the brokenness that comes on the vertical plane, the separation and the alienation that come between God and comes between man. So as Paul lays out the universal sin condition of all humanity, he does so by first describing the bad news of sin with three truths. So the first thing Paul says is this, because of sin we are dead. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And so the death that Paul is referring to is spiritual death. Genesis chapter 3, once again, 
There is going to be the result of physical death now because of Adam and Eve's disobedience toward God, but ultimately it paints a picture of spiritual death. That separation that used to not be there between God is now there. Spiritual death is now the lot of all humanity. The spiritual death is now the condition of all who walk in a lifestyle apart from Jesus Christ. In our separation from God, we are both rebels and failures. We are rebels because our trespasses against God. We overstep His known boundaries. So God says, do this. God says, don't do that. And there's a line in the sand, so to speak, or a fence that's built up. And what is trespassing? Trespassing is coming up to the edge of someone's property where there's a fence built up. And there's a sign that says, no trespassing. You can stay on this side of the fence, but you cannot go on that side of the fence. And trespassing is this idea of we come to the fence, we see the sign and go, I know what the sign says. I know that I'm allowed to be here, but I'm not allowed to be on the other side of the fence, but I'm just going to do whatever I want to do anyways. I'm going to trespass onto this property. And Paul says we are rebels in this sense because we know what God wants of us. We know what God has called us to do, what he's called us not to do. But we, because of our trespasses against God, we consistently and habitually, we happily overstep His known boundaries as sinners apart from Christ. And not only that, Paul says we are failures because of our sin. So we're dead in our trespasses and we're dead in our sins against God. We miss His mark. That's the idea behind sin. The word sin just simply means to miss His mark. We fall short of His standard. And because of this, Paul says we are spiritually dead. Ultimately, life without God is a living death. And those who live it are spiritually dead, even though they may be physically alive. And the second thing that Paul shows us is this, is that because of sin, we are enslaved. So not only are we spiritually dead because of sin, but we are held captive by sin. We are in bondage to sin. We are enslaved to it. Paul says this enslaving power of sin works itself out through the influence of the world, the devil, and the flesh. So, he says to follow the course of this world. That's what we, what we used to do when we were outside of Christ. There in verse 2, we were following the course of this world. We were enslaved to the world. We were enslaved to the value system of this present age, which is just hostile to Jesus. To be enslaved to the world is to be in bondage to the cultural thinking of the day, which is just adamantly opposed to Jesus. But also, to be enslaved by sin means that we are held captive to the devil who is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He is the one who dominates and energizes the spiritually dead in all that they do in opposition to Jesus. But not only that, Paul goes on and says, the spiritually dead are held in captivity by the flesh. For we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So simply put, the spiritually dead, Paul says, are dominated by the world. They're enslaved to the devil 
captivated by the flesh. The world dominates them from without. The flesh dominates them from within. And they're actively working through both is the devil, the prince of the power of the air, the one who is also the prince of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so for this reason, Paul sums it all up by saying ultimately that because of sin, we are condemned. We are condemned. For we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All men are sinners by nature, says Paul. All men stand guilty before God. All men are the objects of God's wrath. And in a nutshell, these verses are a picture of Satan's dark kingdom with its effect on all of humanity. See, to be outside of Christ is to be dead because of trespasses and sins. To be outside of Christ is to be enslaved to the world, the devil, and the flesh. To be outside of Christ is to be condemned under the wrath of God. This is the portrait that Paul is painting for us in verses 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. Now, it doesn't take much to realize that there's just something which is deeply offensive about this message of death, slavery, and condemnation. I mean, we say this all the time. Go into your workplace tomorrow, pull out your Bible, and just rip off Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and say, friend, this is a true picture of you because you are outside of Christ. It's not going to go well. It's going to offend this person greatly. There's something that is just deeply offensive about this message of death, slavery, and condemnation. Something that just rubs us wrong. It sits on us uneasily. We hear these words, we read these verses, and we go through verses 1 through 3, and you just close your Bible and you step back, and there's just something that sort of nags at our soul which says, you know what, Like, I don't know if I just really like what I've just read right there. I don't know that I'm really um, gung-ho about what but what it says there, what we read in these verses, and I think the reason why it rubs us wrong is this, because when we read these verses, it just goes against everything our culture tells us about ourselves. The culture comes along and says, no, these things are not true of you. You actually are good. You are great. You're not condemned. You're not dead. You're not enslaved. But even more so than our culture come along and, and telling us these things that we want to hear about ourselves, it just goes against everything that we want to believe about ourselves. Namely, like, you know, I'm just really not that bad. Like, I read these verses and I go, maybe, you know, I don't know, man. This might be true of this person over here, right? The rapist, the murderer, the person that abuses emotionally, physically, verbally. It's true of those awful people out there, but when I look into the mirror, what I don't believe about myself is that verses one through three are true of me. This is the kind of message that we tell ourselves, but a key ingredient to the good news of God's grace is to see that we really are not as good as we think we are. 
Before God's grace becomes good news, it is crucial that we first understand just how bad the bad news of our sin really is. That's what makes grace so wonderful. Grace becomes good news. Grace becomes gospel. Grace becomes sweet to our lips when we look into the mirror and go, I'm looking into the mirror of God's Word and the true diagnosis, the true reflection, the true reality of who I am before God is chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Ephesians. This describes my spiritual condition. I am dead, I am enslaved, and I am condemned to sin. Every soul outside of Christ is dead in sin. And the universal fact is that dead men do not and cannot respond to God. Sin is a radical disease which requires a radical remedy. And the Apostle Paul says there is one radical remedy which can actually come and reverse everything that we have seen and read so far in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. And Paul says the radical remedy which breaks sin, the radical remedy which brings life, sets the prisoner free, moves us from condemnation to there is now therefore no condemnation is one thing. It is the mighty resurrecting power of God's grace. Notice what Paul writes starting in chapter 2 verse 4. Paul says, but God. Listen, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were enslaved to the world. You were enslaved to the devil. You were enslaved to your own flesh. By nature, you were condemned as a child of wrath like the rest of mankind. Extremely horrible, awful, bad news. You were dead and unable to respond spiritually to God in any way, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in these sins, in these trespasses, enslaved and condemned, God did something to us. He made us alive together with Christ. Paul says, listen, this is grace. By grace you have been saved. This God made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse 7, So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is completely and entirely the gift of God, not as a result of works, as though you could do something to earn this grace, also that no one may boast. See, God has taken great action in order to reverse our condition of sin. God has initiated God has taken great action in order to reverse our condition of sin. Just think about it. What you're supposed to read in verses 1, 2, 3 is this. I'm in a bad way. 
And it's not like I'm in a bad way. I've got a little bit in me to be able to help. You know, I'm just a little sick with sin. And, you know, even though I'm a little sick with sin, I'm still capable and fully able to self-administer some sort of remedy for for my sin. I'm just a little bit sick. No, the picture of verses 1 through 3 is this, is that I am completely dead. And as we just said, dead men do not respond. They do not react They cannot take the initiative to go and do something. Why? Because they are dead. And in our spiritual death, what we needed was someone who was fully alive with the power to speak and bring life into death to do that very thing, to speak into our death and bring life out of that death. We needed somebody who can resurrect our condition, make us alive where we were once dead, And this is exactly what Paul is saying to us in verses 4 through 9. God is the one who has taken great action in order to reverse our condition of sin. We were dead, but God made us alive together with Christ. We were slaves to sin in a situation of dishonor and powerlessness. But God has raised us up with Christ And seated us with him in a position of honor and power. We were once condemned, the objects of his wrath. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, had mercy on us. See, just look at how Paul is drawing us to come and behold the power of God's resurrecting grace. In essence, Paul is calling us to come And behold what God has done for us. It is by God's all-powerful resurrecting grace that sinners move from spiritual death to spiritual life. By grace we are saved. By grace we are made alive. By grace we are raised with Christ. And by grace we are seated with Christ. Remember the good news of God's grace is that God accepts us not because we have earned it or deserve it. Remember verses 1, 2, and 3. Those are not a picture of people who can earn God's grace or deserve God's grace. But the good news of God's grace is that God accepts us. Why? Not because we've done anything to earn it or not because we've done anything to deserve it, but we are accepted by God because He gives His grace to us freely at the expense of His Son, Jesus Christ. See, one question that I have when I read these verses is a question of why. So I see the bad news of sin. I see the depth of humanity's sin, verses 1, 2, and 3. Then I shift to verses 4 through 9, and I just go like, why? Like, I see what Paul is showing us. Like, I understand it here, but like, what's the why behind God's actions? Like, why is he doing this? Like, when you start to, like, sink down into the depths of grace, and you start wading into those waters... And grace starts churning in your heart and begins to just taste good and sweet. You start to have this question of like, why? Like, I know, like, I've done nothing to earn this. Like, I know I've done nothing to deserve this. Like, why is God doing this? Why does God act this way towards sinners? Why is he compelled to act on our behalf when we have done nothing to earn or deserve his grace? Why? 
And Paul says the answer is found in the character and the nature of God. It's found in who God is. God acts this way towards sinners because God is full of mercy. God acts this way towards sinners because God is full of love. God acts this way towards sinners because God is full of grace. God acts this way towards sinners because of his kindness. That's what 4 through 7 is saying. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, just when you think Paul could have nothing else to say about the good news of God's grace, He turns and he continues on in verse 8, reminding us that when we were saved by grace through faith, this was not our own doing. I mean, he really wants to get, I mean, he could have just like written 2, 1 through 7. It's like, man, that would be good for me. You know, like I would be satisfied with this. Like, man, I was dead. Now I'm alive. All right, man, where else do we need to go? But no, he keeps going on. He really wants us to see that the, the immeasurable riches of his grace, that by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may may boast. He wants us to see that God is the initiator. God is the one who is good. He is merciful. He is loving. He is grace gracious, graceful. He is the one who is full of kindness. We've done nothing to earn or deserve this grace. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Grace applied to us is not the result of works. It wasn't some religious, churchy sort of action to where we did the right thing. We punched out the right churchy formula We went to church on Sundays, we read our Bible, we prayed a little bit, showed up at community group, these sorts of things, and somehow, you know, these all things added up to equal, well, God is now sort of hemmed into the corner going, well, I mean, he's sort of done the right churchy religious sort of stuff, so I guess I'm obligated to bestow grace onto him. Paul is saying, no, that is not how grace works. It's not a result of of works so that no one may boast the one who gets to boast is god himself grace is the gift of god all so that no one may boast except god alone hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 he alone is the author and finisher of our faith now what i love about god's grace is that it is a a strong motivator Again, Paul could have said, okay, you know, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, I could be done. And then he goes on a little bit further, like, okay, I'm not quite done yet. Let me give you guys just a little bit more grace. And so he gives us verses 8, verse 9. And then it's like he could have even just stopped right there, but he doesn't. Ten verses, 1 through 9, a picture of grace. 1 through 10, nine-tenths of its grace. But then he comes to chapter 2, verse 10, and he gets really applicational. Like, so what, what does the good news of grace mean for our lives? Like, right, it's good to know that I was dead, enslaved, and condemned. It's good to know that God, rich in mercy, love, grace, and kindness, has made me alive, raised me up, and seated me in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
It's good for me to know that by grace I've been saved through faith. It's not my own doing. It's the gift of God. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't work for it. I have no room for boasting. My only boast is boasting in the cross, God's loving initiative towards me. But what does this actually mean for me? Like, what's sort of the practical wheels on the idea of the gospel of grace as I, as I go out the back door? And this is what Paul moves us toward in verse 10. He wants us to see that God's grace is an extremely strong motivator. Paul says that God's grace is not an invitation to passivity. Instead, God's grace is an invitation to come and walk in the newness of life that we have received as a result of God making us alive together with Christ. Just notice what Paul says here in verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So yes, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Listen, you didn't earn it by works. You couldn't religiously perform works in order to extract grace out of God. This ruins and destroys any grounds for boasting that you might have. But what you do need to know about works is this. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. See, in this verse, this last verse, verse 10, Paul shows us the motivation of God's grace. Paul clearly teaches that we're God's workmanship, clearly teaches we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, God prepared these good works so that we should walk in them, but what grace does, but what grace does is it causes us to approach how we walk in these good works differently. See, before grace, we would think of works in a religious mindset. I want to be accepted by God. If I want to be accepted by God, I've got to do some good stuff so that on the end of my life, when I stand before God as judge and all the works and thoughts and actions of my life gets placed onto the scales, what I'll have is more good works than bad works, and then somehow my good works will outweigh my my bad works, and then what that will do is sort of obligate God to grant grace to me that will get me into heaven, into a life, eternal relationship with Him. Before we know God and His grace, this is how we typically approach the idea of obedience, obeying God's commands, walking in these good works. But what grace does is it causes us to approach how we walk in these good works differently. Religion says keep it all together and never fail. Religion says if you do good works, then you're going to be accepted by God. But the gospel says, listen, the pressure is actually off. The gospel says God has already accepted you at Jesus' expense. The gospel says now that you have been accepted at Jesus' expense. Now what you are to do is walk in good works as an invitation to know your loving God more fully. See, religion says good works equals acceptance. The gospel says good works, walk in them as an invitation to know your God more fully. 
See, this is how grace works. The same grace that saves us is the same grace that motivates us to walk in obedience to God. Grace is not an excuse to passive disobedience. Instead, Paul says, grace is the motivation for God-exalting obedience. See, the danger of grace for those of us who, uh, who tend to tip into the Pharisee sort of side of things, what we do is this. Grace is scandalous to us because grace legitimately says this. You you can do nothing in order to earn a right standing with God. So matter if you're in Christ, whether you fail or whether you succeed, whether you do good or don't do good, no matter what, because you are in Christ, you are right with the Father. And sort of for those of us who've grown up in church, the little Pharisee starts to raise up and go, no, 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 but, but good works, right? We've got to be doing and doing and doing and doing. And if we don't do, then we don't know. And we, we start to just spin out and sweat and we don't know what's going on. And then we start to press the sort of religious do-ism onto other people. But, but Grace comes along and says this, listen, you're, you're not right with the Father because you have a quiet time this morning. Like you're not right with the Father because you prayed this morning. You're not right with the Father because you shared the gospel this past week or failed to share the gospel this past week. You're not right with the Father because you know good worship songs. You're not right with the Father because you attend community group. You're not right with the Father because you're in a discipleship relationship. You're not right with the Father for any of these things. Grace says you're right with the Father because of Christ. Now, because you're right with the Father because of Christ... This doesn't mean you can just go off and do whatever you want to do. That's the argument of Romans chapter 6. What? We sin a lot, grace comes, and we should just sin like hell so that way we can get a lot of grace. And Paul goes, dude, like you're completely misunderstanding the point of grace. Grace isn't a free pass to go and do whatever you want. Grace actually becomes the motivating factor which drives us to go to the one who has shown us an infinite, immeasurable amount of grace in Jesus Christ. There's a story told from the Civil War days before America's slaves were freed. And the story talks about a northerner who went to a slave auction and purchased a young slave girl. And as they walked away from the auction, the northerner, the man, turned to the young slave girl that he just purchased, and he looked at her and said, You, young lady, you're free. You're free. And with amazement, she responded, You mean I'm free? Yes, you're free. I'm free to do whatever I want. The man said yes. So she responds again. So, so you're saying I'm free to say whatever I want to say. Yes, you're free to say whatever you want to say. You, you mean I'm free to be whatever I want to be? Yes. And even to go wherever I want to go? Yes, the man said with a smile. You are free to go wherever you would like. And so she looked at him and intense, with intensity and replied, then I will go with you. See, this man spent of himself. He spent of his time. He spent his energy. He spent his money. He went down and he purchased this girl's freedom out of slavery. And this girl rightly recognized the enormity of the grace that was shown to her. But notice 
that the man's grace did not drive her back into slavery. When her freedom was purchased, she didn't go, man, this is great. Well, I'm heading right back in. The man's grace did not drive her back into slavery, nor did the man's grace cause her to go and live for herself however she wanted to. Thank you for purchasing my freedom. I'm now no longer enslaved to what was essentially a death sentence. I'm free, so peace out. I mean, this is basically an invitation for me just to go live however I want to live. Thank you. Notice that that's not what happened. Instead, the man's grace motivated this young girl to freely give herself to the one who showed her extravagant, immeasurably rich grace. And in the exact same way, this is what God's grace does in our lives. Far from grace being a license to go and live however we want, Far from grace being permission to go and just live in sin, God's grace, Paul says, actually motivates us to freely give ourselves in joy over to the one who showed us the immeasurable riches of his grace. So what can we say to all this in closing? I think we can just say simply that all of this points to the good news of God's grace. See, the gospel declares that our reconciliation with God and our continued life in his kingdom are all a gift of grace. Like, how does this all tie in? The good news of God's kingdom that we can have a life with God under the rule of God because of what Christ did on the cross. They come to us, life with God, the good news of the cross are ultimately and essentially gifts of God's grace. Life with God comes by grace. The cross is given to us by grace. And we are now safe. We are now accepted. And we are now loved all because God has made it so by his grace. Close with this here. Just one of my favorite hymns growing up. I don't know if there's a modern arrangement to it. If there's not, there there should be. But it's one of these great, great hymns called Grace Greater Than Our Sin. Some of the lines go like this. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, brighter than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see His face, will you this moment His grace receive. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. See, some of you this morning need to respond in a very particular way. You find yourselves here this morning outside of Christ. And because you're outside of Christ, what you do is you look at these verses, verses 1, 2, and 3, and you go, man, it's just as simple as this. Like, I find myself right in here. Like, I see this as my reality. I look into the mirror of Scripture, the reflection that comes back to me is this. I'm dead, I'm enslaved, I am condemned because of my sin. What I need is resurrecting power of God's grace applied to my life. Your response this morning is extremely simple. 
during our time, whenever we're taking the Lord's Supper and whenever the band is coming up and playing, you don't need to do anything else other than cry out to God and say, God, resurrect my dead soul. Apply your grace to me. Because God is the one who does it. God, because he's rich in mercy, rich in love, rich in grace, rich in kindness, delights to answer that prayer. Did you know that you can be resurrected out of the deadness of your sin this morning? This can be true of you. That is your response this morning. If you find yourselves going and owning, yes, I see me in verses 1, 2, and 3. What is my response? God, resurrect my sin-dead heart this morning by your grace. That puts a smile on the face of God this morning, and you can be brought from the kingdom of darkness into God's beloved Son, His his kingdom this morning. You can know the good news of grace this morning. That is one way that you can respond. For some of us this morning, you find yourselves going, man, I see where I have, where I am. I used to be like the Ephesian Christians in verses 1, 2, and 3. I know that God has made me alive. He's raised me up. He's seated me with Jesus in the heavenly places. I know I'm a trophy of God's grace, but I still sort of just struggle with this whole idea of, you know, like day in and day out, I just seem to waffle back and forth. Like when I have a good Christian day, I'm just really feeling good with God. When I have a bad Christian day, and like I'm not really feeling good with God. I just sort of waffle back and forth. And I think one way that you can respond this morning is this, to say, God, help me to understand that my rightness with you stands on the firm foundation of God's grace in Christ Jesus alone. Whether I do or don't do, succeed or fail, good Christian day, bad Christian day, no matter what it is, my righteousness, my right standing with you rests entirely upon Jesus Christ. I'm justified by faith. I'm not justified by works. And as you, God, solidify this in my heart and mind, equip me, motivate me by grace to now begin to walk forward trusting and resting in you. Maybe some of you are in that place right there. You struggle with living and walking by grace. Your response this morning is just really in a very similar way, asking God to do the same sort of thing. God, help me see. Help me see. Give me a fresh taste of your grace so that I can respond in a way that is appropriate to you as I walk out these doors and seek to live my life for you. So why don't you go ahead and stand your feet, and I'm going to pray. The band is going to come, and the band is... It's going to sing. And then as I'm praying, Brian's going to come and he'll lead us in the Lord's Supper as well. But as I'm praying, my prayer for you is that whatever God is doing in your life, don't delay in obeying the Father. Do not delay in obeying the Father. Even ask Him for the grace to be obedient in this moment. Let's pray.